Hello and welcome to episode 46 of the Large Format Photography Podcast. My name is Simon Forster and I'm joined by Andrew Bartram, Eric Mathy and Jarob Ortiz. Hello, Andrew. Hello, Simon. Hello, Eric. Simon. Hello. Hello and hello, Jarob. Hello, how are you doing? Very well and it's great to have you with us this week. Um, Right, first of all, um, as usual, I want to say thank you uh, to our last guest, um, from two weeks ago, and that was Mac. <laughs> no, no, <laughs> it was Matt. We were talking about this before we actually uh, started the show. <laughs> yeah, we. I always mess our names up, and Ooh. it's going to be okay this week. I was thinking that I've got over Jared's surname. I've spelt it phonetically, and everything's going to be fine. And I'm thinking I'm going to have to say Matt's name again, and um, so I'm going to say thank you to Matt Bettberger. Um, it, it was uh, great to have you with us, helping us out with uh, with our emails. And also we, we learned a lot about Matt himself. And we also learned about his uh, Kickstarter for his uh, spot meter. Um, and I'd, li- I'd like to say that we could take some credit for um, his successful uh, Kickstarter. Of course. Um, which, as we speak is 800% oversubscribed. Dude, it's ridiculous. Yeah, and uh, I think it was actually, actually, have I got the actual screen somewhere? Because it tells you it was, uh, yeah, it was fully funded in one hour and 40 minutes. And uh, so that was on the Monday. Our podcast came out, I think, on the, it's gone up while I'm even speaking. Um, And our podcast came out on the Friday after. Um, so obviously nobody else actually put anything into it at all until they listened to our podcast. And now um, the, the original goal was, and this is in Canadian dollars, I think, um, 15,900 Canadian dollars. And it's currently sitting at 133,000 uh, Canadian dollars. Ridiculous. And I, I thought that was a fairly low goal, relatively speaking. Well, it was. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, apparently. Jim, do you know what he's, what he's doing? any context okay so he made a little um his first kickstarter was a little on like hot shoe mounted um light meter right just a, just a very simple hot shoe mounted light meter and, like the old Leica ones yeah exactly yeah. but a modern take on it and uh so he decided because he's a pretty good industrial designer and electrical engineer to go ahead and take a crack at spot meters because nobody's re- sort of rethought the spot meter in a long time. Yeah. Spot meters are big and bulky. People usually end up buying either a lot of money in the brand new ones or getting like the old classic Pentax spot meter, you know, for even more than they sold for brand new back in the day. And they're big and bulky and police in the, the United States might shoot you if they see you with one because it looks like a pistol, yeah. um, <laughs> you know, and you're like, no, no. Um, and so he's got this tiny little light meter. It's like this big, like three inches, four inches. And you put it up to your eye and you keep your other eye open and it and essentially superimposes on your vision the tiny spot you're looking at. And it has a comparative value. It's really, really slick. I As want that. I figured you might. <laughs> That's why I brought I it up. I really it, want that. It's right in line with what you, with what you use. It has like three or four different modes. Um, where you and I are from, by the way, audience, Jared and I are both f- uh, from Wisconsin. They would say it's slicker than goose shit. <laughs> He's just because it is, it is see his update, slicker Eric. than goose shit. Eric, did, you see his up, did you see his update on the Kickstarter? Uh-uh. No, no, no. He's introduced, uh, after some feedback, he's introduced a fourth mode to, to the spot meter, which is a pure zone system one. So he had this kind of um, bastardized zone system thing based on 
identifying a texture and saying this is like uh, mid-gray or this is flaky white or something, you know. But now you can um, point this thing at a tone and place it as your zone three, and then it does all the positions, you know, from yeah. that. And you can go and check in the same way as you can in the other modes, the, the contrast range between them. But it anchors your zone two and three and four, whatever you want, you know. So, it's, um, yeah, it's super, super great. cool. It's hecka slick, and it's pretty damn affordable. For a brand That's new great. Meter. It's what? What is it at? How much is it? I can't remember. I think it's about 125 of your sterling pounds. Wow. Yeah, but who uses sterling pounds? We do. <laughs> half this podcast does. <laughs> oh, fair, fair, fair. Okay. okay. And half this worth pod- more than the US dollar. I'll tell you that right now. I'll take some of those sterling pounds right yeah, now. Dude, dude. 100%. It's, uh, hold on. Two hundred and twenty-five Canadian dollars for one meter. That's great. Yeah, I mean a Sakonic. The only Sakonic that's out there with a spot meter is like what seven hundred dollars. Yep. Exactly. <laughs> really expensive. Yeah. Really, really I mean, pricey. It, I mean, we, we we talked about it at length last 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 time out, but um, for for me the. It, it's you can argue um, if you if you're really addicted to stop, to your spot meter then that's that, that's fair enough go you know, stick with what it is but for for me as somebody that uses a spot meter occasionally um, it's tiny and it can fit it in your pocket so and you know as, as, as we all know carrying our gear around can be a real problem so sometimes I'm there thinking shall I take my spot meter with me as well as my uh, quite large light meter and half the time I leave it and I wish I brought it with me and now I can bring it guilt-free and you can look super cool you know that classic photograph of Gordon Parks when he's directing the learning tree and he's got like you know his sim his cinematographer's loop so he can check the scene out you know he's just got this cool ass loop up you can look like Gordon Parks of course he will be far more stylish than <laughs> <laughs> any of us because gordon parks just oozed cool but it's just it's just that small it's just it's really badass which actually brings me to uh opening question although we should probably introduce her before i ask the opening question go 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 with it eric however you wish to take it no, well, <laughs> I, I don't who is this guy well uh yeah. yeah we do we do we do have a guest he has said hello as well so uh you know take take it from there eric Oh, I'm doing the intro? Yeah, I thought you were doing the intro. Yeah, go oh. for it. <sighs> Lord love a duck. All right. Sorry, that's another Wisconsinism. I'm in full-blown cheese head. Worse than usual, this podcast. Um, so, ladies and gentlemen, uh, our guest this this podcast this week is uh, Jareb Ortiz. And I didn't slaughter his name. I fully expected to. Uh, Jareb is the man that most of us in the large format world would called the luckiest man on earth because he landed the gig that what was that Derek? like four years ago five years ago i think it was posted in 2015 right the right. job was posted right so six years ago petapixel everybody started started putting up uh this job ad for the national park service is looking for a large format photographer our next ansel adams and everyone was just like, Aah! and I had just started getting into large format photography at the time. And I was like, there's no way I could land this gig. And I'd always wondered who, the, who landed that gig? Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's our guest today, Derb Ortiz. Uh, and so 
I don't even, I, I was going to start with spot meters, but I guess now it's like, where do we even start? Like, um, hats. Do you have a big hat? Yeah. Yeah. Go Ansel. Do you got the, the big Ansel hat? I do have a large Tilly hat that I do wear. Tilly, <laughs> yes, I do. Tilly hat as well. Excellent. Yeah. But, but I have to because, uh, as I've worked with the park service, um, and all the exposure to the elements, I've developed a rosacea as a result of being in these extreme colds and extreme hots, getting wind blown and everything out there. Um, so now I have to protect myself from the sun any way I can when I'm out there because I just, my skin does not like it. So I have to wear the big brimmed hat. Um, I'll take it. I don't mind it. It's a good look. It's a good, yeah, it's a good look. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, a word of advice, though. Don't pair it up with a photographer's waistcoat will you no no (laughs) absolutely not and so on and eric ask some sensible questions (laughs) dude that you got the wrong guy um so i guess we could we guess we could probably start with like what was i was thinking uh that interview process would be almost like a dog fight you know like a like how would that interview process go? I figured it'd be like a big gladiatorial contest. Like everybody goes into the ring and starts showing images and like like duking it out and like the, the strongest shall survive. But what was it really like interviewing for all things, like a large front photographer for the national park service? Like what was that process like? Cause everybody who saw that job ad was like one, I could do that. No, I couldn't. But then like, how would you even go about getting that gig? So it's really funny, right? Because it's a government job. So, and I had experience dealing with government stuff because I was in the military. I'd applied for other photography jobs in the VA hospital. So it all went through USA jobs. That's where it all went through. Um, but, but if I could just say going back, I mean, I kind of had the same feeling as you are talking about with this whole job, I, when I saw the, the, the posting that you're talking about Petapixel and it was even on good morning America, they posted, they had it on there and it's like, okay. And I saw it and I was like, I'm not a, a lot of people told me to apply for the job, but I was under the same misconception that everybody else was landscape photographer going out and doing these photos of these magnificent places at the park service. And I'm like, I'm never going to get that job. There's so many people that have done that for so much longer than me that have a portfolio, um, a much better portfolio, just a wider portfolio. All I had done for landscapes at that point was the upper peninsula of Michigan and Wisconsin. I was just really staying in my area. So I didn't really think I was going to get the job and I didn't think I had any chance. So I wasn't even going to apply for it. But then I remembered, oh, well, this is a government job. It's on USA Job. Let me go read the job description. So I go on there and I start reading it. And they start talking about, first thing that pops up is heritage documentation programs, historic American building survey, historic American engineering record, historic American landscape survey. And as I start reading the description, I realize oh, this is not a landscape like position. This is an architectural photographer's position, an industrial photographer's position. And at that point, I was 
doing this kind of photography commercially um, in the Midwest. And I was also doing my own project um, to no one. I should say there was no one financing this project. I just wanted to do it. Um, photographing Gary, Indiana and all the old oh, architecture that was there. Right. And I was doing it all on large format just because I thought it was important and I wanted to do it. I was working on it with my brother because he's a photographer too. And, um, and so I, as soon as I saw that, I was like, I can do this. This can happen. I can apply for this job. Never expected to get it. Let me just throw that out there. Never expected to get this job. Um, and in fact, I was going to get out of photography in terms of doing it as a job. I was going to go work at the post office because it's just such a doggy dog world in, in commercial photography. And that's not really my personality. I don't really operate like that. I just, I, I love photography. I love the process of photography, but that's not my thing. So I was going to, this was my last gasp. So I put, put it together, looked at it, read the whole job description, looked exactly what they were looking for in there and then spent nine, nine days, about eight hour, eight to 12 hours a day working on my resume nine straight days in a row making sure that I was hitting all the points that they were talking about in that job description um, reflecting my job experience and all the things that I've done with photography in that resume but keeping it short and concise so that it wasn't like you know 10 pages long it's just nice two and a two page long thing and I submitted that and um and after I submitted it I said, okay, that's cool. I was pretty much done with everything else. I cut myself off from all the commercial clients. And I was like, all right, I'm just going to blow all my money and travel around Wisconsin and forget about this. And I'm just going to spend these, however long it is, just traveling, fly fishing, photographing Wisconsin for <laughs> however long until the money runs out. And um, I think it was about six months later, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, I got an email and I thought it was the denial letter, but it was something else that I'd never seen before from a government job application. My mom knew about it because she worked at the VA hospital. So I took it to her and I'm like, mom, what is this? And she just looks at me and goes, oh my gosh, you, you made it through the first round. You, you're you got you're in the list of people that are going to do it. So they sent me an email. It just said, pick a time slot for an interview. Pick a time slot because they weren't going to fly people from every corner of the country to Washington, D.C. They were just going to do phone interviews. So I picked a, a slot, a time slot that they had. And I think there were they took the, the number of people from four and a half thousand applicants and narrowed it down to 19 people based just on the resumes that they received. It was either 19 or 16 people. And so I just picked the slot and then um, kind of had to go back and relearn the technical terms and not the jargon, right? Like talking 
in scientific terms, the way that you approach photography and not the way we just throw terms back and forth um, as fellow photographers. Um, kind of brush up on that stuff, start like uh, brushing up on all the different types of architecture that I know and like the different eras of architecture and industry. I mean, realistically, architecture is in my specialty in terms of being a historian of architecture. I'm, I know a lot more about industry than I do about architecture, but you know, just going back through and touching up on everything and making sure that I had it all in line. And then after, then we had the interview and it went really well and everything. And um, I felt pretty good after the first interview. They, they badgered me pretty well. They, <laughs> I, I felt it went well because they actually gave me about 10 extra minutes okay. than what was scheduled. And when that happened, I was like, I think I did good enough to get another interview. You got 10 extra minutes there. They don't normally do that. Yeah, but Jared, were they asking you a mixture of sort of why you want to do this and technical, you know, mastery of, was it all about view cameras at that point or was that part of the job description and were they quizzing you on all of that and technique as well as vision and architecture all sort of rolled into one? So it was all about view cameras. It was 100% about view cameras. Even in the job description, they wanted to know your understanding of the whole thing. And they were really hammering in the idea of zone system photography. So they wanted to know how you set up zone systems, how you apply zone systems. Um, You know, then they didn't really ask me about camera operations or anything like that. I, I think they just kind of picked it up from who the applicant was and kind of got a sense based on the, around the way you talked about it. So they didn't really ask me anything like that. Like they weren't asking me like, "What's the shine shine print principle?" They, they weren't asking me anything like that. They're like, "How do you figure out like uh, you know what's the calculation for figuring out bellows extension and you know exposure compensation for macro photography like it, none of that stuff it wasn't um crazy like that uh, or like but um they were more interested in you know the approach to how you finish a job so like right. so tell us about the process you would in what your process would be when you approach a site with your camera and how you would quickly get through a, a, a whole project, how you would document a building and stuff like that. And um, they were really interested in in my other areas that I knew too about like printing because I had done a lot of stuff with color management and printing for companies. Um, that's kind of how I supplemented income working in such a tough market in Milwaukee um, they were really interested in that. Um, yeah, I'm trying to think of, of what else that is. Man, it's, it feels like it's so long ago, but it's it's really not. Jared, <laughs> maybe you should. Um, you, you mentioned they they asked you about you know how, quizzing you about how you approached the subject and and handled the project and how you kind of sized it up and and that. So I mean that. Has that changed your ideas of how you did it then to now? Is it has that changed? And and if so, 
if so, how how has your approach to your industrial photography changed, if it has? Yeah, well, it's it's definitely changed. I've had to be a lot more. Before this, I was uncompromising. Like it always had to be perfect. It always had to be one hundred percent. Like, and if it wasn't the way that I saw it in my mind's eye before this job, I would just simply walk away and say, "We'll do this another time." You're talking mainly Parks. lighting. Sorry, Jared. You're talking mainly lighting. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. If the lighting and conditions were not exactly how I wanted them before the park service, I would walk away from it. Mm -hmm. But here with this job, you don't have that kind of flexibility. You go to a site, you got one week, and you better get it done because the chances of going back are it's not going to happen. So what it's really done is made me figure out how to um, solve the puzzle more or less like okay this is what i got in front of me how do we make this better how do how what kind of things can i do um on my end to get a photo that represents my original vision of this place how can i get as close to that as close to what i saw in my mind's eye how can i do that do you also um, have like like when you're shooting an interior or an exterior or whatever, um, you know, commercially you will often have, you know, an art director or somebody there. It's like, this is what we need. This is what we're after. And they'll mm-hmm. look at the back of the camera. They'll check the shot, that sort of stuff. Do you ever, does a park service, like when you're shooting an interior, is there like an art director or a conservationist or something like that going, okay, this is, these are the important parts of this and this is what we have to get? So I kind of iron that out beforehand. I will talk to, to a, um, somebody that's in charge of a project, whether it's the uh, historic preservation office, officer or just, um, you know, somebody at the park or one of our uh, historians or architects in my office. Um, I'll talk to them and say, what are the absolute, we need to have these photographs. What are those particular frames? Because I don't want to miss those. And they kind of give me that outline, and then they let me fill in the gaps with the way that I see it. But usually when I'm on site, I'm by myself. There's no one else there with me. Um, Unless I travel with a team of architects, and then they're there too, but we just kind of get in each other's way all day. And that makes things really difficult because they're 3d laser scanning the whole building at the same time. I'm trying to do large format photography of a building. So it becomes kind of a give and take. It's, it's gotten better the last couple of years. We've figured out how to do that. And we really have um, come up with a process where we've kind of work around one another and coordinate a lot better but at the start it was really wild it, there was there was some learning there were some pains there dude that would be such a cool shot sorry i'm just totally nerding out at the 3d lasering in the interior of a building and just like a long exposure multiple exposure of the same room with like the lasers lighting up different areas in color would be dope but i'm sure you well, like, that's it's, not it's... actually possible and it sucks but nice thought <laughs> doesn't doesn't really work like that 
<laughs> for me, it's like a science fiction movie, like yeah. yeah. No, it doesn't really work like that. What, what what sort of buildings are we talking about, and what who determines or or what criterions use for what goes on the list of you know of things you've got to get done, you know, in in any year, whatever. Um. So realistically, we can do any building. There is no real criteria. Um, we do buildings that are even privately owned. Uh, na- normally, we're looking for stuff that's on the National Historic you know, Register or National Historic Landmarks, things of that nature. But it can be any bit of architecture or industry that's uh, deemed culturally relevant. Um, but realistically, the way that that all works is who who can appropriate the funds to get it done, right? Everything costs something. Everything's got some kind of, you know, expenditure attached to it. Um, We don't really determine that in our office. That's up for the parks, the regions, um, the individual areas of the national park um, to determine what areas need to be documented. And then they'll come to us and they'll ask, us how much it'll cost to do it and then they determine whether or not that fits their year's budget or not um so we it's kind of the way it works um i mean you could i wish i wish it was more like okay boy yeah i really would like to go do this place we just go do it but it's it's not really i mean you you could you could put pretty much anything on that list You, you use the term what's culturally relevant i mean those guys, all the names just escape me at the moment, but the guys who formed that movement, you know, the new topographics, when they went out and just took pictures of those new buildings that were springing up in the desert for houses, and they were all the same. And they just, and now they, you know, at the time, people would say, well, why are you photographing those? But actually, 30, 40 years on, they, it takes on a whole new meaning, doesn't it? So, But you can't sure. do everything because you haven't got the cash, I presume. <laughs> Yeah. Um, and also there's really only one of, there's one of me, right. And I have to service the whole entire country. So that's also a limitation. Mm. Um, we do have contractors that work with us, but, um, no, it's becoming a little bit more difficult because the number of people doing this kind of technical photography where you're looking for maximum detail, in every single frame, right? Like you don't want something that's extra contrasty where you got really dark blacks and blown out highlights or anything like that. You're not looking for something that you have to interpret. You want a negative that's, you know, very even perfectly exposed. So the the people that can do this kind of work or understand how to to get to that point on a regular, a consistent regular basis, that number of, that list of people is shrinking every single, it seems, month, right? Because that's an older demographic right. of people, and a lot of younger people aren't really – they might pick up the, the view camera, and it's great, and they go out and shoot landscapes and all this stuff, but really getting into the weeds of establishing zone systems and figuring out how to get negatives uh, that are, you know – representative from zone three through zone eight because you really don't you can determine to go outside those zones when necessary but you 
you don't want zone two to zero over a whole part of your negative or anything zone nine and ten taking up large areas of your negative either, right? Right. Joe, um, for, so for, pe- for people who, you're, who we're losing on the podcast, what you're essentially saying is you want a negative where you've got some usable shadow detail and some usable highlight detail. Absolutely. And you're not absolutely. looking for things outside that. And that would be typically to talk photographic terms, five or six stops, really. I mean, that's that sort of thing yeah. I aim for, really, you know. Right. Yeah. yeah, and it's it's difficult when you're doing interiors, right, because you're talking about shooting, like, for example, uh, the um, one area that I did last year was uh, the um, up at Oregon Caves National Monument. They got the chateau up there. It's an amazing place. It's up on the top of this mountain. Um all secluded in the middle of the forest. It's a beautiful place. But photographing it is not easy. The whole interior is dark wood. Dark wood. And then you got these windows on every single wall. And you got to photograph it. And you have to maintain the detail of that dark wood and the detail surrounding all those windows because that's relevant information, right? Uh, you want to see how what the trim is on those windows you want to see the you want to see the environment outside the windows even too, so you have to come up with these these like crazy lighting schemes and really be particular in the way you meter the whole thing so that you're maintaining both that outside the window and all the texture and material detail of those walls. I was curious about that walls. actually. It actually brings it back to the spot meter question. Um, because you know the the zone system, technically, from what little I remember it, right from from twenty some odd years ago uh, in school, we spent a little time, a little bit of time in the zone system. Um, wasn't just a matter of like okay, you meet, you place your zone five here, you place your zones here, but it was also you know establishing with every individual film stock and developer, you know how those will behave and react. Like, is it in your zone system? It may not be a true 400 ASA film. It might actually act more like a 200 ASA film. Like, it's Ansel Adams' definition of film speed was exceptionally fluid. Um, And then also going into the darkroom and being insanely meticulous and testing, 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 so that, like, okay, I need to, the dynamic range of what I just shot is this big. It needs to be compressed. You know, the old adage. Um, exposed to the shadows for the highlights, but how much you're, you're like for every single sheet of film you do when you develop, how much you're developing for every single sheet because they could all be different. It's like meticulous notes. Are you doing yes. that? Are you doing that, Jared? Are you doing your own developing and taking your note, taking and say, well, this sheet needs like end, end develop, normal development, or I need to give it an extra stop in the developer or pull it back a bit or something? Is that, are you doing that or have you got an army of so- technicians, you know? So I used to do it myself when I first got here because I had a dark room. But then we moved buildings uh, from a place that they were leasing and we moved into the main interior building. When we did that, I didn't get a new dark room. So I now send all the film out for development. But, you know... I basically still use the exact same zone system that I established for my films before because the the reason why I do, and I do just 
hold on, time out. Before I get too far ahead of myself, I do take those kinds of notes. I have just journals filled. I mean, just stacks of journals with nothing but exposure notes, exposure and development notes. It's all determined on site. So I basically figure out what the range is of the entire scene. And then I'll be honest, almost 90% of interior shots and minus three every single time and minus three and minus two let's get it done that's how it works because it's just such an extreme range right of luminance that we're dealing with um are you working with oh god just got so many questions are you working with the same <laughs> presumably you're working with the same film most of the time so you've already established what your normal development is which will give you those that range and so N minus three only really means something once you've established what your normal is. And you don't want to be doing like, you know, folks on the internet, oh, try shooting this film, try shooting this film, try shooting this film. You know, you're, you're presumably using one. Yeah, I'm using, I like shooting FP4 and HP5. Those are my favorite because they are awesome in the midtones. Such great film for midtones, not very contrasty, especially if you shoot it really rigidly like I do, you know, meter to a 10th of a stop. Like that's how I do everything. Um, and so it's, it's all established. And and to be perfectly honest, being as particular as, is, you know, you might've had to have been back in the day, like you're talking about Eric with Ansel Adams in this, you know, um, not, it doesn't really need to be because we're not doing dark room printing anymore. You have a lot of leeway when you're scanning film. Scanning opens things up a lot. But you still have to have of, some level of detail in those highlights. Like you still, there's something still has to be there, right? Yeah, but it's kind of crazy because I've talked about this with other with other people that what we call the ironclad negative you it's it, when you're scanning stuff, it's almost better to be a little bit overexposed. Okay. Because some of the scanners they're, you know, they're D max in terms of like how much detail they can pull out of those black areas. Some scanners are not good at that. Some scanners are, they lack there, especially these flatbed scanners. They're, you know, an Epson, v850 for example that's what i use at work as a v850 that thing is not very good at extracting you know details out of the the darkest areas of your negative so you kind of pump the exposure up just a little bit more so that it's it looks the negative looks a little dense okay and you end up getting way more detail out of it especially if you understand how to go into scanning software and really mess around with the levels in there, setting the black point, setting your white point, messing with the gamma sliders, and then just and then creating your own custom curves. You know, something once you I've do actually, that, you can just extract tons of information out right. of these negatives. It's crazy. I've actually tried with some little bit of success when I was scanning the the four by well three and a quarter by four and a quarter, but the negatives from the X-ray negatives from the Butterfield project, I did that with a DSLR, right? And I was like, I wonder what happens if I auto bracket this with like half stops, third stops, and just like essentially because, you know, with digital photography, what a lot of people will do is, you know, they'll just, they'll just shoot these crazy 
different levels of exposures mash into Photoshop, you know, um, mm -hmm. an HDR image, right? And I was like, I wonder if I could do that with scans. And it actually, for really difficult negatives, because let's be honest, most of my negatives are really very difficult, um, <laughs> between, the, between the, the, the handmade camera lens and the fact that it's x-ray film and that I'm uh, terribly inconsistent in everything I do, a lot of my negatives are super challenging. But that sort of like bracketing of exposure in the scan and then putting them together later worked really f well. Like, I was it, shocked. Of the same negative you were bracketing yeah. it yeah 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 yeah, yeah sure thing i did that in school a lot i when i was in in photo school i would do that i would scan negatives in at different things and then sandwich them together just to see how it would work and yeah sure as heck it, it works yeah you can you can do it yeah it's a different approach yeah if you, if you yeah. have basically for those of you out there if you have terrible dark room and shooting discipline like me you can do that as a way to sort of get more detail out of your negatives. Or if you have really wonderful shooting discipline and a really top-notch developer like Jerob, you don't need to, to, to be a hack with your I've, scanning. I've, I've, I feel like there's, there's something I've, 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 I've got to say it. Um, and this is on behalf say it. of somebody that um, is not a large format photographer, probably not a film photographer, and somehow they've managed to get this far into the podcast and they're absolutely a digital <laughs> photographer. And they're thinking, why are you shooting film when, yeah, you could, when you could go out there with, I don't know, a phase one, something like that, you know, a really serious top end, you know, okay, not large format sensor, but a, a large digital sensor. Um, you've got HDR available to you, you know, and, and the, clearly there are times when, it, you know, I mean, HDR gets a, gets a bad reputation from an artistic point of view, quite rightly in many cases, but for what you're doing, it's actually, a, it's, a, it's a useful technique there. Um, and I've just realised I've, I've opened up a whole field of, of, of questions here, going back all, all, all the way to the point where at your interview, they knew about field cameras. They wanted a large format for cam uh, photographer. Uh, they wanted it to be on large format. So there's got to be a reason why they wanted you to work so damn hard to get those photographs where they could send somebody out with less experience and get lots of detail, good exposures, on digital. So just so we're clear, I do go out with a phase one big <laughs> camera, big sensor two on a Arca Swiss six by nine camera. I do that as well. Um, but that's the whole thing. Um, they weren't there yet because we're talking about archivability, right? These photos go to the Library of Congress. They serve as our national record. All public domain. So any photo that I take for the Park Service, you can go ahead and get it right now, and you could print it uh, because the Library's Congress is scanning, or they're scanning these things gigantically on the best scanners you could possibly think. I mean, right now they're using a Phase One back on a copy stand, scanning these negatives, and they're all available to the public, um, which is great. But at the time when they were hiring, there was they didn't have those standards and guidelines for digital in place, or even it wasn't even being thought about at that time. So what they were looking for when they hired someone was a person, someone who understood in depth 
the analog process so that they could continue the work that was coming in, but also someone who grasps all the concepts surrounding digital photography so that we could develop these guidelines and get them out to the public. We're, we're, we're not there yet. We're still working on those guidelines. We're, we're putting it together. It's been a long process. We have to make sure that when they go out to the public, it's seamless, right? Like we don't want there to be a big kerfuffle, like people coming back and yelling at us and everything, just a total mess. And in terms of, you know, what we're looking for in each file, how that file has to be processed. Because even with doing digital photography, you can't just go out there and do HDR for our process. Those files have to be just one solo file, no HDR in single capture, no stitching, no anything, because it needs to be it, a, a record, right? You don't, you want it to be a, a true rendition of what it is that you're looking at. When you do these HDR processes, you're talking about multiple exposures and things being removed in some programs that people use. They have like these auto ghosting things that just pull, you know, pixels out. You want everything to be non-destructive and everything. So they were looking for someone that was right in the middle that could do the old stuff really well and then move it into the, the new the new era of photography. Jared, this conservation thing and, you know, an archive for the future. A friend of mine dropped some negatives through my door a couple of weeks ago from that, from her late mother of her grandmother, my friend in her 60s. So we reckon these photographs were yeah, 1920, 1930, judging by the dress, although it's hard to say because they were in Ireland and maybe they were getting married in like her mother's clothes. So, you know, you it's hard to date things because they handed wedding dresses down and stuff. But these negatives were, I had to use, they were big negatives. They were very poorly exposed. But I was able to make some prints for Bridget, my friend. And she was just blessed by it, you know? Uh, And I'm thinking, well, if I had some photographs on a three-inch floppy disk, I couldn't even plug it in anywhere, you know? So what kind of considerations would the archival, uh, would surround the... um, you know, your bosses when they're thinking about image preservation in the years. So you're, you're, you're using digital as well, but are they really, are they really expecting those digital files to still be retrievable in a hundred years time? So the library of Congress does, I mean, that, and that's real, realistically it, right? Like um, the library of Congress has given us the, the assurance that that can be done. And they're the, they are the leaders in that arena. And I've always said to everyone that ever asked me this question about the digital is like, it's not my job to question them. They are the ones that tell us, okay, we're ready to do it. And then it's my job to say, all right, we will conform. We will, we will change our process to match yours. Right? So um, they say it's good to go. I trust them. They're leaders in it. So I start devising the process on our end so that they can accept the files. Cause they're looking for specific things in those digital files. Like you can't really over process them and all this stuff. Everything has to be very 
you have to be very gentle with the way you're going about doing the, the contrast and exposure adjustments on those files. Non-destructive editing, they call it. So basically, that's where I stand on it. I'm, I don't question them. They say it's good, cool. I can only do so much. Because if we sit here and argue about it, right? If we sit here and argue back and forth on this, it, nothing's ever going to happen, right? It's just... And I I get nervous with large format photography when there's, especially when we're talking about a documentational process here where sometimes you need to record color and what's been deemed the most archival color um, medium is color transparency film. Yep. And when you've only got what E100G and Fuji Provia mm. and mm. Fuji Velvia 100 as your only options, yeah. you need to start coming up with another way to do this documentation, especially for color. Yeah, it's true. And um, so if we sit here and argue about the archivability of this, we might just end up with the ability not to do any documentation at all. We just need to go ahead and start setting these standards and guidelines sure. before it's too late. Sure. So, so the job itself is interesting because, you know, we started out like coming in like, Oh, you're the large form photographer in the National Park Service. And it, it, it sounds as if the gig is, yeah, you shoot a lot, but you also beyond just shooting a lot, um, like sounds like a, a, a decent percentage of your time is less about the photography and more about the preservation of the photography itself and the processes around preservation of work, not just producing the work. Um, yes, that's true. That is a big part of the job, but um, I wouldn't say I'm not shooting that much because I work a lot. Well, I mean, I, I work a that, lot. Let's put that it that you way. are shooting a lot, but there's like more than people would think that there's also this other side of it where you're creating processes and guidelines and having a lot of input on like how that stuff is archived and how it's going to be saved um, forever, basically, for as long as possible as part of the national record itself. And yes. So there's sort of this like interesting administrative back end that you're not just like a part of, but you're guiding. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, that's the reason why I think that, you know, when the job was posted, I think a lot of people romanticized it a lot, you know, and they thought about it. But I really think that there are very few people out there that could actually do the position because of everything that comes with it. Um, I love this job. But there are times when it becomes incredibly frustrating, and it's not just because of that. Um, you're working inside of a giant bureaucracy, and there's pluses and minuses with that. You know, I mean, it's it's a great organization to work for. You've got lots of protections. You work with a great group of people. But I mean, there's you know, you got rules you have to follow all the time. So it's not just a matter of like go do photography. It doesn't work that way. You have to make sure everything checks out and um, on everybody on all sides. Um, when you're going to do a project, all the boxes have to be checked and everything um, safety, you know, the way that you're traveling, you have to follow rules for the way that you travel. There are certain things, you know, there's just all the stuff that surrounds everything with the government job that I just think a lot of people would have 
trouble with doing um, doing that kind of stuff. Cherub, you often hear it said that um, if you're in love with photography, you know, this has been my passion for 30, 40 years nearly, to do it as a day job, you can fall out of love with it. Uh, have you fallen out of love with doing it in your spare time or do you still go and photograph buildings? <laughs> oh, so that is funny because I've been having these conversations a lot more the last, since the pandemic, mm. because I kind of was feeling this, um, that I realized that I had stopped doing photos on my own time. Because it, and it's not that I was falling out of love with photography. It's just that um, my passion for photography was always in historic architecture. Yeah. So a lot of my personal needs in photography were being fulfilled by the job, which is crazy. Because then it kind of opened up a lot of free time for me to do a lot of other things. Um, but in the last year, I've realized that I wasn't producing personal work anymore. And I s started changing and addressing that <laughs> in the last couple months here. I've been going out and shooting a lot more for myself, but I don't do it. I've been exploring other areas of photography that I, I enjoy. Like I really like doing environmental portraits. So I picked up my 35 millimeter camera and been doing environmental portraits and um, mostly that kind of stuff. Maybe going out and photographing, you know, the happenings around D.C., whatever they might be, um, protests or, you know, just life happening there. Kind of getting away from the building stuff on my own time and just trying to make myself a better photographer elsewhere. Hmm. and i've been dealing with color a lot more too i've been getting away from black and white everybody keeps asking me that they're like you don't even shoot black and white film anymore on your own time and i'm like i kind of it's i'm i guess i'm kind of tired of it to some extent and it's not that i don't love it or anything it's just that i've done so much of it i've done so it's really where I specialized when I was going to school was I just shot so much black and white film, so much black and white film. And then when I got here, I just shot so much black and white film and I'm just, I kind of been just shooting a lot more color negative film because that's some place that I've not done a lot. Are you trying um, any of like the, the funky off brands? Or are you still sticking to sort of like Portra, like the more traditional color films where you'd be like, I'm bored. Let's try the Lomo Chrome, like purple. Let's just like, do something goofball. No, because I, I am definitely more of the traditional type because I am somebody that is a control freak when it comes to my photographs. <laughs> and I like knowing like that my results are like, they're always going to be like, I know what's going to happen. I, at least to some extent, I know what's going to happen. And I know the color palette and I know, I can kind of visualize it all as it's taking place. Um, it's not that I'm saying that that stuff is not relevant or anything like that. I, I understand. It's just it doesn't fit my personality. Right. So I just uh, stick to the traditional stuff. I've got to ask this question as well. So top tips then. Simon said architectural photography. 
let's just keep it let's go get it really basic top tips for architectural photography with a large format camera and why is using a large format camera so good for architectural photography tips uh well one you better be really patient and really like i'm trying to think of how to say it um you got to yeah it's, you got to be patient you need a lot of lights <laughs> make sure you have lots of lights um and understanding how that all works um but most of us out there who are going to go out you know into a city center and photograph some buildings if you can if you're allowed to set up a tripod with a large format camera without being trampled on by some nazis you know guarding a building thinking you're you know, up to something nefarious. Most of them aren't going to have access to the insides, are they? So what? You know, so there you are. You've got your view, you've got your view camera. You're, you're set up in the city center. Give us give us some top tips for photographing that uh, that building that's looming up in front of you. Uh, I mean, always do research. That's the thing I'm always doing. I, if okay, so like, let's say I'm thinking of a place that I want to shoot. Go out and shoot someplace I've, I've maybe never been there before, and I'm going there. Google Maps always on Google Maps constantly. You have to be a lover of maps when you're doing this kind of work, right? Because you want to know what direction something's facing so you know when the light is on which facade, right? So when you get there, you know you can get right to business. Um, always think about how something may look in different types of light, right? Like, well, what might this look like in raw sun? What does this look like if... What, how can I envision this looking under a completely overcast day? What kind of shots would I do in a completely overcast day? Um, what kind of shots would I do on raw sun? Usually when it's an overcast day, I like to, to cut things down and focus on details, right? Because you're getting nice, even light and stuff. So you don't really want to take a photo of a building and have just this white, washed-out sky, right? So, um, you know, always have a notebook, Always have a pen because you need it. I mean, you just, you need to write those notes down. I'm meticulous with it. Every, every meter reading I take, it goes in a book. Any person I talk to or um, what a a short, uh, just detail about every single image I take goes in that book. Um, And I still say that, I mean, you need, to write out every single stop that you meter. I, I, I've been doing this for since 2009 only. I mean, that's when I first time I picked up a camera was in 2009. Um, but I've done it every single day since then. I still need to write everything down in order to organize it in my mind, right? It's, it's just so much info that's coming at you if you're trying to do it to this rigid zone system it's it's all coming at you you need to organize the data the information otherwise it's going to get all lost and you're not going to get the results you're looking for it's just that simple but are you are you um i can understand sorry joe i understand you applying that degree of rigor for your day job but when you were doing your project photographing you know before you got the job you were on your own personal projects photographing somewhere i made a note of it where you were photographing um were you you know were you employing that degree of rigor or were you just sort of looking at a gray and saying well that's you know that's roughly mid-tone 
I am. I have always been this way. I know. I do not like doing things <laughs> off the cusp. I uh uh-uh. uh. I would. I, that's the reason why I like. The, but that, see, that's the thing. When the large form, it's like I have two personalities, right? Like when I got the large format camera with me, it's very rigid, and I've always been that way. I just can't help it. And that's the reason why I like going to the 35 millimeter camera every now and then, because then I can just, I'll literally just take a, a, a handheld meter, an instant light meter and hold it up and be like, what's the sun giving me? Read it. And then I just know based on looking on scenes like, okay, well, if I just do this and then cut the development back, give it this much exposure and pull the development back. Great. Whatever happens, happens. Yeah, but you can do that. With, you can the- do that with large format as well. You don't need to have palpitations about it, Jerob. Come on, oh, free up the inner uh, anarchist. Oh, that's a painful thought, Andrew. That is, oh, I cannot. You can let go. Come on, I'll be your therapist. I'll talk let you through it. Let it go. You know, I think the reason why is because, you know, I came up learning it in school, right? And when I was in school, it's not like we had to pay for it all, right? So it all became like, every single click of the shutter, instead of hearing the click, I heard more like a cash register just going ching, ching, every single time I clicked that shutter. So I think it's just been ingrained in me to be that way. And even my instructors at the school I went, where I learned from um, at Milwaukee Area Technical College, they pounded that into me because they were about consistency right? Being a commercial photography, being able to, to get consistent results, knowing that you're going to be able to do things, um, and promise people things, right? Like you're going to go do a job for somebody, they're paying you money for it. They ask you if you can do something, you tell them you can and know that you can. So they've like really trained us. I would say it was almost like a boot camp style of photography school where you know being super disciplined and under and always being in that kind of mindset very technical so you've talked to us a little bit about lighting and um, you know approaching the building and, and looking at maps and so on and so forth but what about camera movements what on a on personal work or on your day job what sort of camera movements are you employing and why so mostly for the most part what we're talking about you know is just making sure that both the front and the the rear you know standards are just parallel right because you're talking about making sure perspective is correct making sure that the film plane is parallel with the face of the building so that those lines are going straight up and down right that's that's really what you're and if Sometimes you might put a little bit of a forward tilt in just so that you can reduce the f-stop that you're using in certain situations, but that doesn't work all the time and when you're doing interiors. But um but there are times where I do have to employ crazy swings and tilts and everything, and I'll give one example of this was when I was doing photos at uh, Cape Lookout on the Outer Banks of North Carolina, and we were doing the lighthouse there. I had to photograph the door at the top of the lighthouse, an exterior view of it, 
the wind never stopped blowing less than 30 miles an hour for like four days straight. And I'm on top of here with this giant camera and bellows and it's just, just vibrating and everything. So I, all I could think is I'm never going to be able to take this photo the way that I want to. So what, how can I, how can I do this? How can I get a photo of this door? So what I did was I kind of propped the door at an angle and then I took the camera and swung it so that the angle matched the door in a certain way so that we could see these railing details because there was a path. Think of it like a circle around. There's a path. There's a railing on one side and then a door. So then I lined the door up in a way where it matched this railing detail. And then I took the camera and made us made a swing so that the angle matched the angle of the door. And then I could shoot it at F eight mm-hmm. instead of shooting it at F 32 or something like yeah. that. You're, impl- you're, you're manipulating your plane of focus using that S word, aren't you? That we, we, we went through a period of asking every guest to explain the Scheinflug principle, but we won't ask you because no, you, you don't, don't. You, you don't use it a lot. <laughs> <laughs> When you've got lots of tall things poking up, the Scheinflug principle is not really much help, is it? You you need to keep that traditional depth of field parallel. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is part of the Scheinflug principle. It is, yeah. You know, that's parallel, true. parallel, yeah. That's, yeah. It's all part of it, yeah. yeah. It's but just people, a when very... People think, when people think of it, they think of that manipulation, manipulating the yeah, like, depth of field, don't they? We're all waving our hands around on this as though exactly. people can see well, us. Well, you two are. I Simon, know. <laughs> Simon doesn't show his hands because, I don't know. Some he's got a camera he's, there. He's, he doesn't have yeah, hands. He has a camera. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I was just looking for a hands. beer, looking for my beer mat. Beer mat, yeah. Uh, that's 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 how we um, explain the Scheinflug principle. Um, that goes yeah, back it's to been a, it's uh, been a while uh, since it's been a while since Mister Schlein Schein Seinflug Seinfeld has uh, made an appearance on the show. <laughs> <laughs> actually, I would uh, this actually this, I have a question that stems from a conversation you and I had earlier this week about one of your shots in the interior. And it was like an eight-minute exposure because of HP5 reciprocity and, you know, a million strobe shots in order to get that balance in and out, which is why I started to think of um, how you managed to balance your interior and exterior and in terms of the lighting and the zones and how much you pull or push for development in order to deal with that. Um, But you were talking about, you know, going to these really remote places by yourself. But you've, how do you, transport like how many lightheads and do you end up having to pull up into those places when it's you and eight by ten god knows how many film holders and then a massive number of of heads right and then yeah like your gear is crazy yeah it's usually about like i think i'm trying to remember i think it was about 500 pounds of gear that i take when I do this, when I do film, it's a lot less when I do digital, but when I do film, it's about five, especially in a really big shoe. Like you're talking about it. That was at Oregon caves, that photograph. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's about like 500 pounds of gear that I take on those, those particular shoots. Um, uh, let me think one, two, three, four, I'd say like anywhere from four to eight strobe heads. Uh, all different, you know, you know, power outputs on those strobe heads. I also bring like a small strobe pack that I can use handheld. 
Because mm-hmm. basically, you know, I mean, you want to set up lights and get a good base, like where you want lights to be coming from and source, but then use that small one to kind of paint, paint. Exactly. paint the space in between. But how Jeez, do you, I, forgot. I mean, the interesting thing then is they so say you've got like four to six to eight heads, and then you've got like a smaller unit um, that you sort of fill in the gaps or, or based on your experience paint in on your intuition, but this is an eight by 10. Like, do you end up setting up like a digital and testing a few times to make sure, okay, this is what this is. You're just like, no, I have no. this. I'm going to expose two sheets of eight by 10 with this and I'm good. Like how does uh, that actually work out? Because this flash is something that you can't, you know, you, you can't just sort of make it up. You have to meter to a, a, an insanely, to an insane degree, right? And it's it's kind of crazy because even folks that I work with they think it's crazy because I always say that it's a translation of numbers. Um, right. All those flashes are written down. I do not do a digital what people call a digital digital Polaroid. Right. I can't work like that. That's just it's too much of a process. It's just it slows me down way too much. I can do it much quicker by just meticulously writing down the, the readings on my meter in a book and doing all these calculations and just knowing, like, I just know exactly what it's going to look like in, because I can picture it in my head. Like I can, I can just, it's so weird. I, I, it's hard for me to even explain. I just, based on the numbers that I've written down and the light modifiers that I'm using, because I know what kind of light type I want to use for particular areas, whether it's an umbrella, a softbox, or just a raw strobe head, or maybe a bounce off of a wall or something. I just know what that kind of light is going to do. And then it's just a matter of those numbers that I have written down, translating to a visual, um, so it's like I, I set up all these lighting ratios and it's just really crazy. It's hard to explain and put into words because a lot of people, it's it's so visual for everyone else, right? Like even back in the day, a lot of people were shooting Polaroids first, right? They were shooting oh, yeah. Polaroids and I, I don't do that. It's just all in a book and it just all translates right to the negative. Um. And I, I for, for flash photography, I expose four sheets of film. And the way that I do it is I, I figure out what the the ambient light situation is because I want the photo to look to look natural. I don't want it to look flashed. I don't want it to look like just outrageously just, somebody just took lights and just indiscriminately threw light into an area just for the sake of getting detail out, right? I want it to look something like you would experience if you were to walk into a place, first go through and meter the ambient light. And usually the first, I always check the highlight first. What's that at? And then I go and find the darkest spot. And if that dark spot is outside of the realm of the dynamic range, which, you know, is, you know, visually it's five stops, but in the sense of film, it's eight stops because you can pull three stops off the top and Mm -hmm. get it into that five stop range. If it's outside of that eight stop range, I just set it all the way down and then I base everything off of that, 
keep that exactly the same. That base exposure for the ambient light is always the same. And then I just bracket my flashes. So I do one shot. The first sheet of film is always, okay, this is the way that I've metered it. This is the way that I think it's going to work based off of those meter readings. Great. Then I do another exposure, same ambient, you know, same ambient calculation, but then I just do the flashes one stop up. Okay. Third shot, flashes are two stops up from that from that first exposure. And then the fourth frame, which I rarely ever use. In fact, I don't even know why I do it anymore. I think it's just because the film holder has two sides on and there's four sheets of film and I don't want to get all confused. I always do one with the flashes one stop down and I never use that one because I'm usually pulling three stops off. And that's something that people don't think of when you're using flash in these situations now. So, cause you're pulling three stops off. So when you're pulling three stops down, you can flash the crap out of something, pull three stops out and you're pulling all that detail out of where you just flashed. The only thing you have to worry about is where the shadows are going. You don't want shadows going in every which direction. So you can like throw flash across a room all over the place, pull it back three stops and it looks like perfectly exposed because nothing's blown out or anything. As long as you're, initial meter reading is is good you can throw flash like crazy and just extract details through the manipulation of development you do a single pop or there are times when you do multiple pops with the strobe head oh geez like man at ellis island oh geez let me tell you about this one ellis island was crazy ellis island was insane so i seriously they sent me this is my first assignment like one of my first assignments with <laughs> of the course it's your first one right yeah yeah this is crazy like i was so nervous because they have like news there watching me and everything and i'm like i've never done anything like this in my life this is crazy it, it was just this huge space and it was completely dark and the park was like we want this room photographed. And I kind of looked at him like, are you kidding me? This place is huge and it's all dark with windows and light. Like, how am I going to do a photo here and keep all this, this information in check? Um, so I purposely left it all the way till the last day because I was so nervous about this one shot. And I was just trying to figure out what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And finally, I just had to calm down. I was like, look, dude like having a conversation with myself in my hotel room one night. I'm like, you know how to do this. It's all photographic theory, right? Like you take a meter reading, a flash, it comes in, um, you know, let's say, you know, you got that and you, it's at F16, but you need to get to F32, you know, two, two pops equals the next one, four pops equals the next stop, you know, on, on and on, right. It just, goes up and then figuring out, you know, inverse square laws. Like, so, okay, if the flash is at, at this distance is the flash at this distance reads at this one, you know, you double the distance, then you're talking about you've lost this number of stops and then doing it all based off of that. And I had to do this across this giant space in multiple rooms in all these different locations. So I ended up doing a 15 minute exposure. I did this only on two, this, this one I only did two sheets of film because it was so long. 15 minute exposure. And then I had a flash, two flashes raw on either side of the camera that I was just chucking light down this corridor as far as I could, just chucking it. 
Um, I can't remember how many flashes were on those. I had no clue. I'd have to go look at my my notes. But then I had flash heads with individual battery packs located in certain places along the way where I'd walk through the scene and get to it. And then we're talking like back wall, like 32 flashes. (laughs) Then I'd like put that flash down. Then I go to another, like this back room. And there was a flash there that I had to pick up with its battery pack. And I had to flash this space 60 times. Then I had to like go to another room with the same, to another flash. Or no, I used the same flash because I needed the 1000 watt second head. So I carry this thing and I had battery packs set up in strategic locations along the way because I was using the full amount of the battery in one area. So it was like, 60 flashes here, 60 flashes there, 60 flashes in this other location, 60 flashes. And it was just nonstop, like all the way around. It was crazy. Just so it was crazy. like choreography. Like you had a 15-minute shot. And in that 15-minute shot, you had a script where you started at A, you did this, you went to B, you did this, you went C, you did this, all the way through for 15 minutes until you ended back at the camera and you went click and you closed the shutter. Yeah. Yeah. Well, all I can say is I'm glad I turned the job down because you're clearly the better man for the job. <laughs> I'd have quit on day one. <laughs> well, it's great when you get to, when you start throwing like the yellow filters in and like all these different color filters because then all those meter readings you take, you have to go into your notebook and then like, oh, yeah, so that flash isn't actually reading it. That I need to take a stop and a half off and then to, like, you know, put all these other little like variables in there and it becomes very tedious but fun i I like solving these puzzles so you like you like math is what i'm i used to not it's funny until up until i did photography i used to think i was terrible at math and i thought i could never do it but then i found this this thing where you are dealing with these equations and stuff and it's applicable and after I started doing photography, all of a sudden I'm like going to school to do like uh, astronomy classes and like doing these calculations, like figuring out like wavelengths to stars and stuff and like math equations that are like four pages long and just loving every second of it. It's just it's funny what photography's done in terms of changing the perception of myself even and what I'm capable of. Where did the love of photography and photographing old buildings stem from? They're kind of two separate things. Um, the love of photography came from, it's two, two things happen at the same time. Like my stepfather, he loves photography, loves it. Um, and he always wanted to go to school for it, but he said that he just never had the money growing up to do photography because photography is an expensive thing. Um, So around 2008 or so, he started showing my brother this old Canon AE-1 camera and like going out and shooting it and showing us how these things work in the process of photography at a very basic level, right? A very basic level. And at that same time, a friend of mine took a beginner's class like the, the, the photography 101 at the school that I ended up going to. And he, he comes home one day and he's like, he just throws a slide at me. 
And he's like, take a look at this. What the heck is this thing? I don't know what to do with this thing. What are you talking about? I don't even know what this is. It's film, man. Just take a look at this. I think you'll really enjoy this. And I look at it, but I don't know what a Chrome is at this time. I have no clue. So I'm like, I don't know. What? What am I? He's hold it up to the light. Hold it up to the light. And I hold this 35 millimeter like little frame up to the light. And it was instant. I was like, oh, what is this magic? What are you? This is this looks awesome. Wait, 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 wait. What what are you talking about? What, you made this with a camera? This how does this whole process work? And it was almost instantly these two things came together. My stepfather like encouraging me to, to look into this, and then my friend showing me a, a chrome, and just instantly I went out and bought a camera. It was just that fast and it just overtook me. I just cut off everyone. I got rid of my phone. I stopped like just taking any kind of communication from anyone. And all I did was just start hitting books and just learning, learning and shooting all the time. And it was like shooting, getting film, looking at it, being super critical of myself, right? Like, God, I suck. I'm terrible. I just, I don't want to be terrible. I want to be good at this. Everything was just, I want to be good at this. I want to know how to be better at this. I'd see photos like all over the place. I'm like, I want to take photos like that. At that time it was Flickr, right? Flickr was the big photo sharing thing. I would be on there night and day, just looking at photos constantly. Like I want to know how to do that. I want to know how to do that. I think that person's photo is amazing. So it wasn't like so much looking at the masters of photography. I was really gaining inspiration from just everyday people that were posting photos and seeing what they were doing and thinking, wow, this is like, there's so many people that are doing great things out there. I want to incorporate all these small little tidbits of what they're doing in my photographs and just getting better at it. And it, and then it wasn't even that much longer after that. My brother shows me this photo, the Ansel Adams, uh, snake river and the tetons you know and i remember seeing that photo and going what the heck is this right and i was like what what camera did he take this with like what 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 was this a canon a 5d mark ii or something (laughs) and he's like no this is a view camera and i'm like whoa a view camera well what's this like what the hell he tells me it's a film camera and I could not believe, I had no idea what large format film was at that time. And I could not believe that this was, that this photograph was made with film because I was so used to like, you know, those little like Kodak flat cameras with the, that, oh, I can't remember the name of the format. What is it? One, yeah, the, the crap little <laughs> negatives that are like this big. They're like those little tiny negatives and 35 hey, millimeter. You can have fun with the 110. Don't, don't knock it. Yeah, 110. That's it. 110 film. Yeah. So when I saw that photo, I started looking into view camera more. And at that same time, I was kind of photographing buildings with my 35 millimeter camera. But, you know, the buildings are all falling in every direction. I didn't understand what was going on. And it was just pissing me off. Like, 
why is it that I see all these people with these beautiful photos of buildings? Like they're just looks so perfect. How are they getting these perfect photos of buildings? What's the madness behind this? What, how do you do it? And then I look at get introduced to this view camera by way of Ansel Adams. And then I start doing research on the view camera and find out, Oh, well, this camera was made for shooting architecture because of the movements that allows you like these movements of this camera. I got to know more about this. And then that's what eventually ended up pushing me into going to college because I wanted to learn the zone system that Ansel Adams, I wanted to learn how to do it. And I wanted to learn how to use that camera. And I knew that I could do the research and possibly learn it myself, but I would never be confident if I did the research myself. I needed to go to a formal education so that I would feel confident in what I was doing. I know that other people can be self-taught. I just couldn't do that and feel confident going forward. So rolling back to the start of that, I think um, I'm super curious. One of the things I've noticed, and and maybe Andrew and Simon have as well, is there's a a whole generation. I'm obviously a bit older than you. Um, There's a whole generation of, of kids to young adults who've never really produced anything that's physical like they've they've lived a digital life um so when they see you shooting film and they're just like whoa you know let alone like something like an instant camera you know they're just it's just like a light like holy cow you you're going to produce something that, that you can hold in your hand which is just a, because they've done nothing but digital is just a mind-blowing moment so when, when your buddy hands you a chrome was was that the switch where you're like, holy shit, what, what is this? Was it that physicality of the medium? Like, what was it about that that really hit you between the eyes? The thing that got me was, yeah, was this idea that, like, light passing through this lens and interacting with the substrate and recording that exact moment onto this physical thing. So you've like, it's all these things that are interacting with one another physically, right? Like in real time and then producing something that you can always go back and revisit right? At anytime you want. And it was that whole process that really kind of hooked me in. And I think also too, it's just like the whole idea of you got this, this tool that you sit there and tinker with, right? Like, you know, you got this lens, you're focusing and all these things. And, um, but yeah, I think with that film, it was just really this idea that it's this, like the idea of light passing through glass and touching it and then recording something in front of you and it becoming physical. That really just blew my mind. Um, Like magic. Yeah. Yes, very much so. So, Jared, when this job was advertised, or maybe shortly afterwards when it was hit in the press, it was described as the next Ansel Adams. Well, all I've heard you talk about so far is photographing old buildings. So what about Yosemite and, you know, Brideville, Brideville Falls and all that nonsense? Well, if uh, they want me to go and photograph the lodge at Yosemite, I'll be there first thing. But yeah, that's not really a part of the job description. Um, don't really do the, the traditional landscape. Actually, don't at all. Don't do any of the traditional landscapes. Um, 
I don't really know how the whole Ansel Adams thing came to be. Um, he never did this job ever. Uh, he was a contract photographer for Department of Interior, which is where you see a lot of where a lot of his um, really well-known photographs came from, is that he was commissioned by DOI to go out and do photographs of the landscapes. But that is about as much as he's ever done for, for us. And even then, I mean, we're talking about for Department of Interior, he didn't even work for National Park Service ever. Um, so I think the real connection with Ansel Adams in this particular position is just a pretty tenuous one. In-depth knowledge of the zone system and the view camera. Really, that's it. Other than that, there's no connection at all. So so ultimately, it was just a, a marketing piece to how can we get as many people, um, quality people, to come and apply for this job as possible. I know, let's talk about Ansel Adams and they'll be on television and the world will see it. And we'll get some publicity as well. So it's crazy because I've asked that question about that and it, it wasn't made up internally. They say that like everyone I talked to at the park service said that the, basically the media saw, found this job posting about this view camera position and they labeled it as, I don't know, man, you know, people pointing fingers at one another. That's what I was told by everyone inside the park service was the media saw the job posting and then they picked it up and ran with it. They never expected. What's that? Fake news. (laughs) Yeah. In in this instance. Yeah. Well, I think (laughs) very much. It speaks to how um, strongly Ansel Adams' work identified with very specific national parks. Like you think of Ansel Adams and you think Yosemite, you think these monumental national parks, right? And so if the yeah. National Park Service is looking for a view photographer, right, like you immediately think, who do you think of? Ansel Adams. You think of the Ansel national Adams. parks, you think of Ansel Adams. You don't think of that the National Park Service runs the monuments. Like, that includes the Lincoln Memorial. It includes Washington. It includes these big, iconic buildings. People don't actually make the connection that, like, the guy patrolling that is a Park Service ranger. Yeah. Right? And that's part of the National Park infrastructure. They think these giant national parks that were established by Roosevelt and the others. And the most iconic American photographer ever did anything with that made a huge impression on, on America was Ansel Adams. Yeah. Well, yeah. and he did, I mean, he lived in Yosemite. I mean, he lived there and he definitely was connected. It's, it's you know, he, he played a part in the park service. I'm not saying he didn't play a part, part there. It's just as a matter of being employed by the park right. service, that was never a thing. And yeah, people don't really ever think about like Ellis Island. Ellis Island is National Park Service. People don't think about that. And that's an immigration station. It's just a hospital and like, you know, all these other buildings that helped that hospital run. It's not something, it's not what you normally think about when you think of the Park Service. And the National Park Service also administers the, you know, National Historic Landmarks Program. We also, you know, administer the... 
National Registry of, of Historic Places. We, we're in charge of all of that stuff. So it's, right. yeah, it's, the Park read, Service is a lot bigger than what people think. I read somewhere um, that you use a five by seven camera, not not eight by ten. So that's uh, what, why. No, no, no. It's got to be. Why is it's, it? No, it's definitely eight by ten because that's what Eric said. Oh, yeah. Eric said that, did he? Oh. Eric, hey. Eric got there. Hey. Eric definitely got that wrong. It's I I shoot the the quirky format of five by seven. Okay. Oh, yeah. Um. But that, you know, when I first got here, I I definitely shot four by five more because I was used to it. But then, as I was shooting more, and looking at photographers before, so Jack Bauscher, he had this job. He was in a position here doing this job for fifty years. He was in this position for fifty years, Jeez. and he shot strictly five by seven and. I started reading some of the books that he had and was looking at his images on, you know, the Library of Congress. And I started realizing that 5x7 works so much better for architecture than the more the boxier format of 4x5 or 8x10. And it's, you know, you think about it, it's because, you know, you're looking up at buildings. You want to get vertical. It's a little bit more stretch. You can fit more of that information in. Or if you're doing, a, you know, you're looking down the facade of a building, you know, that elongated frame just reads better with architecture. Um, so I, I actually prefer it. And it's a happy medium, too. You get more resolution, a little, just squeak out a little bit more resolution than 4 by 5 and it's not a hulking behemoth like the 8 by 10 I'm sorry, I do not want to be hauling an 8 by 10 around. Everybody that shoots 8 by 10 right now, I bow to you. You are amazing because I cannot believe you haul that giant monster around. <laughs> <laughs> but five by seven films can be hard to red. find. Yeah, I was yeah. going to say that film film availability is the issue, isn't it? Surely, it is. That's that really is a problem. There's no color transparency in five by seven film anymore, um, and they don't sell. Uh, they only sell it in packs of twenty five. So, like in four by five, you can get a hundred sheets in one box, and the price is a little bit better because of it. You can't do that with five by seven. Um, it's worrisome to me because I think that any day they could just be like, eh, "That's gone," yeah. and just rip my heart out. <laughs> oh well, just go digital. Yeah. You'll be fine. Yeah, just go digital. Stop it. Shush you. <laughs> Right. Well, uh, Jarob, it's. I think this is probably the time where we we need to uh, start to wind things down, largely for Andrew's benefit, uh, because uh, <laughs> he was he was standing up earlier on, and um, all we could, see, all we could see was his waist. Um, deep vein like, thrombosis. I was getting deep vein thrombosis. I'm going to keep these podcasts get any longer. I'm going to be collapsing through the blood clots. <laughs> I was going to say the actual, actual recorded show is going to be uh, considerably shorter than the amount of time we've actually been talking. Uh, the, well, that's the, it. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah. 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 Well, I finish this. I go through to the other room, and Julie will say, "How can you be talking for over three hours? <laughs> what What can you find to talk about? You don't talk to me for three hours at a stretch. What can you talk about with these guys? I get that too. I get that too. Yeah. I absolutely hundred percent. 
Yeah. Yep. 46 yep. episodes in and we're still going. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, right. Now let's, 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 let's properly start to wind things down. Um, first thing I want to do is just say thank you to those people that have, uh, donate, don, don't, donated to us <laughs> since, uh, last time via finding our, uh, coffee page that's ko-fi.com and somewhere on there um large format photography podcast you can find us in fact actually if you just after ko-fi.com if you just put forward slash large format photography podcast you will actually find our page um but we've had uh, two donations since uh, last time and they are from uh buzz and he says, uh, great shows recently. <laughs> I always think that means that the ones before haven't been Crap. quite so good. Um, so great shows recently, uh, going from strength to strength. Always looking forward to a new to the, to new episodes. Have a coffee on me. Eric too. Thank you very, very much, boss. <laughs> uh, and um, uh, Nick Smith um, uh, says, uh, really enjoying the podcast with your eclectic and fascinating range of guests. You keep talking me down talking taking me down uh new large format rabbit holes with each show well, i think there's quite a few this this week as well so uh sorry about that nick um so um not sorry but, yep um yeah sorry not sorry um we're not going to do any emails this week uh they will we're going to bunch those together uh, like we did with uh, matt um so uh when we have enough emails we'll we'll do a bit of a catch-up show and an email show so uh so that is those now then um back to you jarab if uh, you have a um the best place to see your images is probably on instagram which is actually uh, we were chatting earlier it's it's a, it's a very very limited um range of photographs uh, because there's lots of archive work going on in in the background and uh, so the, the majority of your images aren't on yet available and that's something that's been been worked on um so best places to see what people can see of your work what what's that going to be is that going to be instagram Instagram would be the best place to see them, but it's not going to be all of them. Um, to see the the collection as at large, um, to see what other photographers have produced for our collection, you could see that at www.nps.gov backslash HDP. And then you would go to the collections the collections tab on the left-hand side and it'll take you to library congress website where all of the photos are and the architectural drawings as well and the histories for each sounds about as easy to get to as our coffee page <laughs> <laughs> so double all the w's at dot mps dot gov backslash h d p did you say oh, yeah I think, HDP. We, I think we've just lost jarab He's, yeah, he did say backslash HDP and then HDP. the collections. And then go to collections. Yeah. Yep. His, he, his picture is paused in a yes. he's frozen. most unflattering manner. <laughs> um, well, hopefully uh, he might come back. So I think in, the, in this meantime, in the meantime, um, while he's trying to knock on the door to get back in, hopefully, um, let's do our contact details. And uh, let's go to, they never know which one I'm going to go to first. And I'm going to say, Andrew, um, mm. have you got a shout out this week? No. 
<laughs> okay. And, uh, <laughs> and how can people keep up with the things that you get up to? Oh, I'm moaning on Twitter quite a lot. Um, oh, war, war boys. Hello, Jared. Jared Sorry Jared. about that. <laughs> yeah, we were, we, were, we, were fill, we were filling for you there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nobody, nobody knew. Nobody could tell. Um, we're, just, we're just doing um, like shout outs and contact details. So we'll let Andrew fin- fin- finish off of this bit and then we'll come back to you. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram as Warboys Snapper. And I have a separate pinhole feed, Warboys Snapper underscore pinholes, funnily enough. Or you can find me hanging around two Facebook groups. That's our large format photography podcast Facebook group and the Lensless Podcast Facebook group. Yeah. And if if somebody wants to get in touch with us and maybe have a question for us or something like that, what's the best way of doing that? Large format photography podcast at yeah. Yahoo, is it? No. No, I've no, oh, forgotten. Wow, I don't wow, know. Wow. What is it? Eric, what, what's the email address? I believe it's what you started with. Large format photography podcast at gmail.com. Yeah, there you go. Well Ooh. done. Is well it? Done. Where did I get Yahoo from? I, no one no one has Yahoo email addresses today. Geo Cities or whatever it is. Oh, yeah. God. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> Just so, dated um, all of us except for Jared, who's like GeoCities. The hell's that? Yeah. So, 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 Jared, Jared um, the we we sort of got your uh, that the, the, how how to get to your photographs, um, and decided that was really hard. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the, my Instagram handle is just at Jared Ortiz. Um, and if you want on Facebook, there is also, you can look up heritage documentation programs and my photos will scoot across those pages too. Yeah. yeah. But it is, but it is worth, worth noting that, yeah, the, uh, it's, it's not, there's, there's a, there's a huge volume of photographs that are currently being digitized and, uh, there's a backlog. So therefore we, you know, we're not going to see too many of your things on there at this moment. So, uh, uh, but that's that's, that's fact, going to change at some point. You might even be deceased by the time the first one comes up. <laughs> Don't say that. They joke about that all the time in the yeah. office. <laughs> <laughs> but, but we do we do have something of an exclusive well an almost exclusive we were uh, chatting off offline earlier um we had a little break in the uh, the, re- the recording and the artwork we're going to be using for today's uh, podcast is going to be that epic photograph or a square version of is perhaps the best way to put it a square version of the ellis island photograph that took 15 minutes and and saw jarab running around with flashes and running out of batteries and and generally panicking um you can see that photograph and it'll have lfpp written down the yeah. side of it so that will be uh be able to well, you're gonna see a beautiful photograph we're gonna crop square and ruin with our, with <laughs> yeah. our initials <laughs> but just imagine in its full glory Without our five by seven, the Hasselblad. All right, cool. Let's do it. <laughs> exactly. Let's hey, do you it. Know. Yeah, you, yeah. Look, bye, bye. you can look at it. Yeah, and they'll be in low res. So <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> this guy's the this guy's the new Ansel Adams. Really? <laughs> this the funniest thing is that at work I have a book sitting right next to my computer. That's like it's seriously just a tiny little book, and it's all Ansel Adams photographs. And people just laugh whenever they come in there because it's the smallest like it fits in the palm of your hand of all these large format photographs and like what is the point of this book i'm like no that is the point you get, it's it's tiny 
tiny photographs of big photographs. It's it's great. Um, let's head over to California and Eric. Um, how can yes. people keep up with the kind of things that you you're up to when you're not doing this podcast or looking after bunnies? <sighs> Well, Instagram, Eric Matthew. Um, same as always. Actually, I said Eric. And now, now I'm no Eric H. Matthew. E R I K H M A T H Y. And there will be bunnies on that, of course. And lenses and under construction and the occasional odd photograph that I take when I manage to take photographs. Excellent. And uh, for myself, I'm on Twitter as Simon4. I'm on Instagram as Simon Forster Photographic, which is also the name of my website if you stick co.uk after that. And that's where you can buy lots of lens caps, um, as many lens caps as you want. So, Very nice uh, lens caps as well. Yeah. Oh, that's a point. I, uh, I, I dropped you those uh, those lens caps, the, the custom-made lens caps for your, mm. uh, your Leica lens. Or, my projector lens. Yes. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Or uh, 200 mil L, L mar because I've got exactly the same lens. I thought to myself, oh, I can just measure mine and just send 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 these across. You know, it's so, very nice uh, of you. And I gave you quite a lot of marketing. I shared it widely and told people where they could go to get their bright red lens caps from. I was going to send you orange ones, but I thought better of it because you'd be moaning about anything that I do in orange. So I thought, no, <laughs> that's pushing things too far. The running joke, Jerob, is Simon has the most obnoxious orange chroma view camera that man or God has ever seen. Like, it's, you could take his camera hunting in Wisconsin and be. I was going to say Hunter Orange. Totally, yes. it's it's obnoxious. Or KTM cycles. Oh, there you go, Andrew's. Oh, I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. That was that was my lens cap being demonstrated there, by the way, um, for for for, lis for listeners on the radio. Um, <laughs> um, anyway, yes, like it. it looks it looks very nice, Andrew. Um, and uh, I can also be heard. Oh, we've we've been a bit tardy on doing shows for the Classic Lenses podcast, but uh, hopefully we're going to be doing something pretty soon. Um, and I think um, that's just about it. Our music is by Kevin McLeod and it's called Two Finger Johnny and everybody loves it without exception um, and um, uh, and that's it so I hope you've enjoyed this week's show and um, it'd be great if you can come back with another time so goodbye yeah bye see ya thanks so goodbye <laughs> <laughs> goodbye